0: This morning we offered two prayers that if God answered, it would be rather interesting. In the Lord's Prayer, we said, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I asked myself during that prayer, I wonder if we really mean that. Would we really want God to forgive us as we forgive each other? Uh, Are we that good at giving grace to people? And then we asked for something else. We said, Holy Spirit, rain on us. And I wonder if we really meant that, and what the implications of that would be. Certainly that's our, our, our thoughts as we're going into the book of Acts. I'm just getting surprised every week by what that would really mean if the Holy Spirit rained on us. We're going to go into a, a subject this morning on grace. I thought after 37 years of preaching, I, I knew quite a bit about grace. What I'm finding is that as I'm into the book of Acts, looking anew at the Holy Spirit, studying Philip, I found some new dimensions of grace that are surprising, challenging, exciting, maybe disturbing to some. And I just want to warn you in advance that if some of the things said today, you're saying, wow, Um, go and check the scriptures to see if these things are so. And stack it up against maybe some biases and things that we've held on to for years. And maybe the Lord will have some corrections for us and maybe some new exciting chapters for our church. Let's uh, bow in prayer. Lord, we're very grateful that your Spirit is leading us, and that you're a dynamic God, never changing, and yet in a sense always changing in terms of helping us understand you. You're so big. Grace is such an f- incredible mystery and joy and gift. And my prayer today is the Holy Spirit will give us increased insight into what this amazing thing is called grace. May we receive it ourselves, and then with new power, give it to those who need it so desperately. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This last summer, as our government was giving medals of honor to World War II heroes that had been neglected for 50 years, I thought, how wonderful. How sad we were slow in giving them, but how wonderful even now we sought these people out and awarded them And it was at the same time I was studying in Acts, and I rediscovered Philip, a fellow I have never preached on. He's what I would call an unrecognized hero, sort of like these guys out of the Second World War, but he's an unrecognized hero of the New Testament, one we haven't given too much attention to, and yet he's one of the most strategic preachers in the book of Acts. Why? Because he took the revolutionary step of taking Christianity beyond the boundaries of simply being a Jewish cult, which, if that had not been so, Christianity would have simply died. Following the Holy Spirit's guidance to go to the Samaritans, Philip revealed how the grace of Jesus was not simply for the Jews, the chosen people of the time, but it extends to all persons without any cultural, moral, economic, or racial barriers. Very revolutionary step. And I'm thinking as our church responds to God's call to become a contagious community, I believe that we're going to be called to be Philip's in our time. Believers who are dispensers of the grace of Jesus for everyone, including those we might consider to be the Samaritans of our time. And so with that in mind, let's look at this hero called Philip. First, Taking the good news of Jesus to the Samaritans, Philip reveals that God's grace is not for a chosen few. It's for everyone without cultural, racial, moral, or economic barriers. Very significant. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. One sentence. Revolutionary. Maybe we can better appreciate the strategic importance of Philip's ministry by understanding what it meant for him to go to Samaria. Hostility between Jew and Samaritan was similar, if not greater, to the hatred between Jew and Arab today. A Jew considered Samaritans racially impure because they had been inbred with the Assyrians after the captivity. They were religious heretics because they did not worship at Jerusalem. And above all, they were morally degenerate, they thought. Philip marches right through all these stereotypes and takes the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people that the Jews considered, the Christian Jews at the time, inferior morally, ethnically, culturally, and economically. That has lots to say to our divided society today. As we're called to dispense the grace of Jesus, I am convinced as I watch what's happening in our society as we're becoming increasingly divided with huge walls between us, that the only hope of climbing over all of these barriers, of ever reconnecting people back into community is for evangelical Christians to take some leadership of dispensing grace in a way that we have been sadly negligent. One evidence of the Holy Spirit coming alive in our hearts today as it was, he was alive in the book of Acts will be an attitude change toward those that too often many of us have labeled as modern Samaritans. Now, who would they be? And this is where it gets sticky. I'm certain it would include those uh, who teach cultural relativism, who push the banner for gay rights, who advocate pro-choice, who follow New Age spirituality, people we've labeled as out there and not of us, and maybe beyond the grace of Jesus. And then certainly it would include those who practice loose sexual lifestyles. And then it would include... Those who carry great guilt and who can't believe God could ever forgive them. And maybe if we're involved, we say, yeah, you're right. And then if we want to press it a little further, it might include the Samaritans, might include those who don't dress like we do. We see them around Menlo Park, who might have a tattoo, who engage in body piercing. So goes the list. You know, we've we've created kind of a subculture out there of people who maybe are among the lost, and I would call them Samaritans today. They don't fit the mainstream of our evangelical code of behavior and appearance. And maybe many of them just kind of wouldn't fit in here on a Sunday morning. Some time ago, I received this letter. The writer says, I'm a Democrat. I I don't need to hate homosexuals, pro-choice advocates, or Republicans. I'm tired of the rhetoric of so-called conservative Christians who seem to spew nothing but hatred for those who disagree with them. This is so unlike the Jesus I know. Is there room for me at MPPC? You know, I certainly hope we don't have those kind of barriers in our midst, but I thought about it and I said we probably do to some degree. But I hope those barriers in the process by the Holy Spirit of being knocked down because as we get close to Jesus Christ, first and foremost, as his followers, we are called to do one primary thing in the world, and that's to be dispensers of the grace that Jesus died to make available, to dispense it to anyone and everyone who knows they're sick and who are looking for a position. I'm not talking about those who want nothing to do with Jesus, who are in rebellion against God, who who aren't looking for any help because they don't think they're sick. I'm talking about the people who would be interested if they only knew that the hospital was open to them. As I have spent some time looking back over the life of Jesus in reference to this sermon, I, I find it fascinating how our Lord always shows a preference for real people versus good people how he always welcomes home anyone who's strayed away from God and wants to return. In fact, he seems to show a preference for the one who strayed the farthest. His math is rather interesting. He's not interested in the 99 who were already here, but the one who was lost. He, he didn't get too excited about the elder brother who stayed home. He had a fanatical love for that guy who went to the far city and got all dirtied and wanted him to come back home. There are people we rub shoulders with every day who will have nothing to do with the church not because they're in rebellion against God but because they feel judged and rejected and they don't think there's any physician because they're so sick and so abused and so sinful they think they're beyond God's concern and the reason they think that is because the church has projected that message. Who are they? Well, they're people who secretly or not so secretly are dishonest in their business dealings people who've made huge mistakes and bad choices, people caught in addictive habits and lifestyles, people who've gone through divorce. Oh, we could make a list. And I went through this list and I asked, well, who are they? Well, they're out there, but you know, it also includes everybody here. And that's why we came in the first place. We needed a physician. The list of human brokenness is endless. Sometimes I've suggested to someone I meet out in the world they learn I'm a pastor, and I say, why don't you come to church? And their response is almost classic, and maybe this is what they say to you. I already feel guilty and horrible about myself. Why should I come and hear a sermon that will make me feel worse? I'm just not a church kind of person. You know, I, that, that breaks my heart when I hear that. The, the, countless people out there hold this stereotype of the grace of Jesus, and I wonder, what have we done? Where did we get this so fouled up? And I need to tell you, as a pastor, I'm committed to attacking that distortion wherever possible. Again, there will be people who, who by their own choice, don't want anything to do with Jesus. But I want to knock down every barrier that's a human barrier for those who want something to do with Jesus, but they don't think they qualify. Last summer, I was given an amazing gift, a classic 57 Thunderbird. It was the car of my dreams. It was the car I had that that my wife and I dated in. And um, this car was given by a person just as a reckless random act of love. Well, I took the car to a local mechanic who's a specialist on T-Birds and I started establishing a friendship with him. About the third visit, he learned I was a minister and immediately he began apologizing for the words that slipped out of his mouth. And and you know, that apology really made me uncomfortable. Because again, you see the stereotype. I'm too pure to hear those kind of words. And when I told him I once in a while share them too, we, we had a little bit of connection. And as our friendship grew, he talked about, he said, you know, I'm really not a church person. I used to be an Episcopalian, but really I'm nothing. Uh, but he said, maybe I'd like to visit your church. But then he said, and this is classic. He said the ceiling would probably fall down if I came to worship. I've heard a hundred people say that one phrase. I don't know where it came from, but that's the impression. Ceiling's gonna come down if I come. Again, think about it. That remark should make us brokenhearted. How did we so grossly miscommunicate the grace of Jesus to someone who might want it? This guy views the church as a place for which you have to qualify in advance to attend. It's like saying, I wanna go to the hospital, but before I go, I've gotta get all better. We get it all turned around. And I tried to tell him that he's a wonderful candidate to visit us because all we are is a group of broken people who can match any of his sins in the past and probably a few more. We have one thing in common at Menlo Press, I told him, a mutual need for a savior, a mutual need for the forgiving grace of Jesus. And when my mechanic friend comes, and I I know he will, he's gonna have dirt under his nails, he won't wear a suit but I really want him to feel welcome here. I I think this is to say, I trust as the Holy Spirit works in our midst and fills us as he filled Philip's heart, it's going to extend our arms in terms of whom we include that would be welcome in our church family. And it will certainly include people who are different from us racially, culturally, economically, And above all, it will include people whose lifestyles might be very offensive to our deepest convictions, but people for whom Christ died and to whom our Lord extends an invitation to His party, even before they shape up, just as He invited us to His party before we shaped up. Now, if this teaching of grace makes you a little uncomfortable, it sounds too inclusive, the classic one, it sounds like license, that if we just throw out grace, then it isn't going to change anybody and we we don't define sin and, you know, that whole litany. I want to ask all of us, has anyone ever been changed from a lifestyle that we think is sinful by judging them and by saying it's wrong? There is one force in this world that changes people, that changed you, that changed me, and that's to get under the shower of the overwhelming grace of Jesus who loves us while we were still sinners. He died for us before we shaped up, and that kind of love revolutionizes us. And it starts us on a journey of becoming what He wants us to be because He loves us before we become. And I think the evangelical church has turned that all around. And we can't even meet the standards, so we live like hypocrites, much less asking the world out there to meet our phony standards. If you want to think deeper, what if Jesus were walking the peninsula streets today? As you read the the book of Luke particularly, I've just finished it, uh, his social habits would shock many conservative religious people, just as he shocked the religious elite of his day. Think about it. Have you ever considered who our Lord's friends were? He associated primarily with big time sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors or embezzlers, as we would call them today, profane fishermen. Have you ever can imagine what Peter's mouth was like when Jesus met him? And then lepers, who are the modern lepers, AIDS patients. And, And this is really shocking do you know who Jesus listed at the top of his list as the ones who were probably the most difficult to get into his kingdom? The rich. It's almost, he said, it's easier for the, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom. Never said that about a prostitute. Amazing. And do you see how we've confused it? And we think if we are, are kind of white and rich, that we're the in group. And if Jesus were here, he said, you're the out group and you're in there just by the skin of your teeth and you ought to be thankful because the real people are out there. They're so broken, they know they need a doctor. Now, you know, I guess that's pretty revolutionary, but it's really true. Check it out. Mainly blue collar people followed Jesus. And you know who the only ones who really hated him were? The conservative evangelical Pharisees. They wanted to crucify him. Because if Jesus was right, they were wrong. They were going to get to God through their morality. And Jesus said, you've got to come through my cross. Philip Yancey in his book on grace makes the observation that during the earthly ministry of Jesus, sinful people ran to him, not away from him. And today we've reversed it. Sinful people run away from the church while those who feel morally superior are in the church casting their judgments over the wall, out at the world, at those who disagree with them. Well, what's my point? I, I think God is calling our church to some new chapters. The world out there is so thirsty for the grace of Jesus. And grace is a gift that costs Jesus everything to give, and it costs nothing to the recipient except to receive it. And we still, that almost sounds too good to be true. You and I do not have a corner on the market of grace. Grace is not ours to give or withhold. Grace is powerful and once received, it changes broken people into people who are becoming all that God originally intended us to be. And grace is the only thing that will ever do it. As Yancey writes, grace is lavished on those who had no way earned it, who barely possessed the faculties to receive it. Grace came free of charge. No strings attached. Oh, I yearn to have this church be a place where broken people are drawn, not driven away by our unloving attitudes, who will come here in their sinfulness and feel at home as they get bathed in the grace of Jesus. And then they can start a journey like we're on. Mark Twain talked of people who were good in the worst sense of the term. I I want us to be a church filled with people who are good in the best sense of the term, which simply means we're grace-filled lovers of broken people. We love the broken because we've been broken. And as as we grow in the Holy Spirit, here's something I trust you'll really think about this week. The primary task of us as Christians is to love people, and the primary task of Jesus is to fix them. If we love, we create the environment where Jesus can take the crooked and make them straight, the bent, and, and, and get them whole. And too many times evangelicals have moved into our Lord's arena of responsibility, and our primary job becomes to fix people, and if they don't get fixed, they're not welcome. Now, I don't have any idea where the Spirit of God is gonna lead us as we grow in our understanding of God's grace. I, I hope we'll hardly recognize our church in five years, I do believe, like Philip, we're going to be called to reach out to people who are not on our lists of spiritual respectability currently. People maybe for whom we have no natural affinity, but somehow the grace of Jesus is going to get so a hold of us that suddenly those people are going to start appearing here and the face of our congregation will change and maybe it'll look more like the crowd that followed Jesus. There's a second truth here. And I I love it. It's that the Samaritans responded to Philip's message and there was great joy. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. So there was great joy in that city. You know how refreshing it is to be reminded that the grace of Jesus really works. In fact, it's the only thing that works to change people. And it bridges the widest gaps between persons. It takes away overwhelming guilt. And when that miracle happens, folks, there is joy. Grace is associated with joy. So I'm going to come back to worship a minute. You know, we've been being led by the Spirit into a new format of worship. I'm not so sure it's new. I think it's a return to what they did in the book of Acts. Why do we emphasize joy in this hour? One reason. Because we have experienced the incredible, unbelievable, fantastic, outlandish grace of Jesus. And we're experiencing it every day of our lives. It's a grace that takes away our sins and it takes away sins even of us who are Christians who know better and we go out and blow it week after week and that grace still keeps coming and and God never stops loving us and it's almost too good to be true. Isn't it great to celebrate week after week there's nothing we've done or ever will do that will make God stop loving us and there's nothing we can do that will make Him love us more. I just can't get over that. It is too good to be true, but it's true. And we should be filled with joy, a joy the world out there never can understand until they've experienced it. It's only those who don't understand grace who are gonna be satisfied with a somber, lifeless, boring worship. God isn't boring. There's nothing somber about God. If you read the book of Revelation, heaven is gonna be celebration, no solemnity. Yet Philip Yancey tells this story, oh, it's good. In church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling, spitting, humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about, and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off-Broadway said, stop that grinning, you're in church. (laughs) And with that, she gave him a belt, and as the tears rolled down his cheeks added, that's better. And she returned to her prayers. And then he writes, suddenly I was angry. It occurred to me the entire world is in tears, and if you're not, then you'd better get with it. I wanted to grab this child with a tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God, the happy God, the smiling God, the God who had to have a sense of humor to have created the likes of us. By tradition, one wears faith with the solemnity of a mourner, the gravity of a mask of tragedy, and the dedication of a rotary badge. What a fool, I thought. Here was a woman sitting next to the only light left in our civilization, the only hope, our only miracle, our only promise of infinity. And if he couldn't smile in church, where was there left to go? I just said amen. You see, where there's grace, there's joy. And we shouldn't let anything in this world take our joy from us. Now our church family is very diverse and I hope it's going to become more diverse because it's certainly going to be that way in heaven where every tongue and tribe is going to stand at the feet of Jesus. I believe God has placed us strategically all over the Bay Area where we can relate to people who will never come to church, never understand the grace of Jesus unless they experience it firsthand through us like my friend the Thunderbird mechanic or maybe like some of the young people who experienced it over at Stanford during this Veritas Forum. You see, we have gotta go out there and live down the stereotype of how people view us. So I wanna challenge us. I want you to go check the scriptures and if you think what we're saying here is God's truth, let's become Phillips in our private worlds. Would you dare to pray with me this week? Lord, show me who you want me to love in your name, particularly the one who doesn't measure up to my standards and for whom I have no natural affinity. And then I want to say a word right to you. I don't know about you, but sometimes I sit in church and I get just stabbed by probably the evil one of saying, Gerber, what are you doing here? If people really knew you and knew your past how can you be a preacher? How can you sit in church? Do you ever feel like that? I wonder when you sit here and suddenly for reasons you can't even imagine, suddenly your your past is thrown up, a guilt that you're carrying. I want to say, if you have buried guilt over a sin you can't forget, it's time to get rid of it. It means that you have a distorted view of God's grace. And I'm going to invite you to give maybe that recurrent flash of guilt and give it to Jesus right now and let him bear it away, bury it under the blood of his cross in the deepest sea, taking it away as far as east is from west, and set you free. That's grace. I want to close with another word from Yancey. I wish I could have written this because I would agree with every syllable. Grace comes free of charge to people who do not deserve it and I'm one of those people. I think back to who I was, resentful, wound tight with anger, a single hardened link in a long chain of ungrace, learned from family and church. And now I'm trying in my own small way to pipe the tune of grace. And I do so because I know more more surely than I know anything that any pang of healing or forgiveness or goodness I have ever felt comes solely from the grace of God. And I yearn for the church to become a nourishing culture of that grace. Oh, how I pray God will make our church family, a nourishing culture of his grace that'll spread like a virus in the peninsula. Grace to the undeserving is the legacy offered by this little recognized hero called Philip. I trust we'll accept this gift for ourselves and then share it this week. And we'll take another step toward becoming that church of the book of acts which is so desperately needed in these times would you bow with me in prayer lord thank you for grace thank you that it takes us a lifetime to understand it thank you you can forgive us when we distort it lord set us free to know how to receive a gift freely and then to give it freely for we pray in christ's name amen